Hi, everyone. Welcome to Drinking from the Fire Hose, a podcast for school leaders. I'm your host, Ellen Willoughby. Being a campus leader can feel like you're drinking from a fire hose with all the information, requests, tasks, and duties that are thrown your way on a daily basis. So how do you manage to do it all and help students grow? Well, that's what this podcast is all about. Welcome back to part two of Drinking from the Fire Hose with Dr. Angela Ward, who is talking to us about restorative practices. It's really important that, um, so culturally responsive references, basically, that we are understanding culture. And so culture is anything that makes you the unique person that you are. It's your background, it's your values, it's your beliefs, it's your bias, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's customs, it's traditions, it's things that... Um, it's every, not just your race. It's no, it's culture is not synonymous with race. Right. Race is a social and political fabrication that separates us by skin color right. and appearance. Yep. Culture is what makes us who we are, and it it impacts the way that we um, that what what we value mm-hmm. and what our beliefs are. Um, and so, a culturally responsive restorative practices requires us to really understand the difference between race and culture. Right. It really requires us to have those critical conversations about Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally mm-hmm. Responsive Restorative Practice, uh, yeah. um, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. Right. And so she really looks at um, the brain and how culture impacts the brain. Right. Um, and how different cultures around the world value different things and how that shows up in the way we engage with each other every day in school spaces and in society. And what what I always framed um, like equity work as um, cultural proficiency is that on-ramp to equity. And so you can't have an equitable space where a strong culturally responsive restorative practices process exists if you haven't first looked at who am I? What are my values? What are my beliefs? What are the things that drive the decisions that I make every day? That's cultural proficiency. Mm-hmm. And if we're not asking ourselves critical questions, not being um, critical doesn't mean negative. Right. Critical means critical thinking. Right. It means lifting a heavy cognitive load and not taking everything at face value. And so in order to be able to do a culturally responsive restorative practices on a campus, one has to be critical and critically self-reflective. And you have to question the why of decisions that typically happen on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, why do we receive students at the car line in this way? Why do we um, dismiss ninth graders in this way? You know, is there a better way? Um, is there, are all the students receiving what they need if we send them all at the same time? Um, you know, really questioning the why in your decisions and also questioning by doing it this way, are we missing opportunities for children to get exactly what they need from us as adults and each other as peers? Right. 
And I'll, I bet a lot of times the, the why is, because well, this is how we've always done it. <laughs> Not a good enough answer. <laughs> Not a good enough, exactly. You know, so. Yeah. Or this is how I want it to look. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. as a leader, I need mm-hmm. it to be this way. I need it to be this way. Right. That individualistic view of schooling is a, is a sure on-ramp to the school-to-prison pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, this is, I'm just loving this conversation. Okay, <laughs> Me too. So, <laughs> so I want to take us back to um, tier three. Mm-hmm. So tell tell us a little bit about the, those, those practices that happen in tier three. Um, because to me, I feel like this is like where people have a definition of, like we said, or like, we, you know, you said a restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Um but it's not that. It's about mm-hmm. those restorative practices. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and what people typically think, educators who are not being critical and critically self-reflective, they think of justice as throwing the book at a child. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. figuratively. Yeah. Um, and kicking them out of the classroom. Um, and um, limiting their ability to be free and liberated in the school space mm. you know it's it's seen as a compliance measure oh yes compliance and compliance is a big part of schools mm-hmm. that are not practicing mm-hmm. um yeah yes restorative yes, community restorative. building exactly. yeah 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 like just get it done and pass the test mm-hmm. and we need our scores mm-hmm. absolutely and it, it's interesting um you know this this current reality that required us to have um, online learning really limited our ability to be in space with each other. It limited our ability to um, be connected and it, it created a microscope on children. Yeah. in ways that that being in the school space didn't. Um, Tell and me a little bit more about what, what we, you mean by that. We found teachers begin to, to implement compliance measures through the computer screen. Oh. And so take your hoodie off your head, turn your camera on. You can't wear that on the screen. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I did um, some empathy interviews with some eighth grade ladies, and they were talking about um, how they weren't able to be their unique, authentic selves anymore. Mm. Um, One was talking about how she was, she's basically the life of the party when they were face to face. She had her own table at lunch. (laughs) She had her crew. Everybody was like, hey, what's up? That's my girl. None of that was happening in this online space. So her whole social identity. Her whole social identity went kaput when we closed schools. Yeah because she was now finding herself at home with her family Mm -hmm. and not interacting with anyone. Right. So completely different. Um, And she longed for one teacher in particular would create the opportunities for them to have breakout rooms Uh and talk about whatever they wanted to talk about or breakout rooms that were in the context of the, the, the academic content. Mm -hmm. But being purposeful about 
connection and trust building and those things are often missing, which is what gets us to tier three. Mm. And so those compliance measures that were happening through the computer screen were were creating what what I'm I'm afraid we're gonna have to have the fallout from when we're back face to face. Um, if we're not prepared as adults to utilize our academic content in a way that gives us the ability to have those meaningful conversations with students about life and society, those soft skills, so to speak, those soft skills need to be happening in your academic context. Um, And so tier three, it goes back to those, um, structures that you have in place with that implementation team. That implementation team should have people, adults, who are responsible for um, engaging in community um, outside the school. They should know who the who the major stakeholders are outside the school that um, hold trusting relationships with the majority of the students mm-hmm. or majority of the families. They should know where the places many of the students hang out when they're not at school or their families go when they're not at school. Um, They should know how to contact parents. They should know if they should know particular ways of being for the parents. And it's important that all of that knowledge exists on that implementation team because you're going to need it when students get to that tier three level. Mm, Um, You might have a student who's been in your school system since elementary school and all along the way, all the adults have done their due diligence to make sure that we put them on the path to the school to prison pipeline. Mm. And now we have the nerve in high school to wonder why they don't want to be here. Exactly. And so tier three becomes really crucial at middle school and high school because those are the ages where we lose them and we don't want to lose our babies. And so and I feel like we're even in in some cases losing them in elementary. school. We are. We are. We're um, Bettina Love calls it spirit killers. Mm. We're killing their spirits as early as elementary school. And. If their spirits were killed in elementary school, yeah, of course their their behavior is is where the adults don't agree. Right, it should be, and we question the the word behave. You know, who gets to decide what behave is? Right, what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like. You know, is it the teacher or is it the student? And back to that social discipline window. Um, we, we're moving away from punitive, which is the tip top of the, the adult has all the control and the child has no support. Mm-hmm. Um, moving over to doing things with the students, where the students and the adult have an equal weight in regards to who controls the behavior and who's giving the support. Mm-hmm. And so we really want to look at how are we doing things with students at tiers one, two, and three, and it really becomes crucial at three because we're at a space where we might lose this child. Right. 
um, academically, socially, or emotionally. And often academic-wise, and when there's no behavior involved, it, it's the special education route, right? right. Yep. Um, or it may be just putting in some Tier 2 interventions, and then they're able to function at Tier 2 mm-hmm. and never back at Tier 3. But Tier 3 is where we have those really crucial conversations about, hey, this isn't working. The child is not getting what they need. We're not able to function. They're not able to function. Something's got to change. What needs to change? What are the things that the adults need to do in this child's life so that they're able to function better at school? And it starts with the adults, like you said. It starts with the adults. Absolutely. It's our responsibility. And we can't blame the parents. Mm, Thank you for saying that. Yes. It's not the parents' fault. Right. The parent may have whatever the parent may have, but when we're face-to-face with our students, we have them seven-plus hours a day. Right. And my children are in extracurricular, so they're at school even longer Mm -hmm. each day. And so you see our children as educators more than we see them as parents Mm -hmm. when the school year is in session. Right. And so we can't say it's the parent's fault. And how do we involve the families in in these practices as well? Like what's the family component? We have to make sure that we're looking at all the ways of being with the family. We can't expect all the families to come up to the school. Right. Some families don't want to come to the school because the school was not an inviting place for them as as children. And it still might not be an inviting place for them as a parent. That's very true. Before we get back to the show, we wanted to ask for your help in reaching campus and district leaders. If you like what you hear in this episode, hop on over to whatever platform you use and give us a rating and review. It really helps people find our podcast and lets us know what we're doing right and also what we can improve upon. And of course, don't forget to mention us to your colleagues. Thanks. Now let's get back to the show. Um, You know, I remember we had one parent who was basically a bully. Um, He came to the school and was angry about something. I can't remember what it was. But he was literally standing in the front office, screaming at the top of his lungs, big, huge fella. And I'm just 5'4". He's like 6'3". Oh, wow. And just just towering over me. I'm like, I really want to talk to you right now, but I can't talk to you in this state. So can we go in the back? No, I'm not going in the back. Okay. I can't have you in here screaming at my staff, so something's going to have to change. (laughs) And so eventually he, he left and had a different respect for me because I didn't allow him to just be what he felt like he needed to be in that moment. And we have to find ways to dig deep into our emotional um, recesses so that we're able to be what we need to be for people because often people are dealing with something. Yeah. And it's not our fault that they're dealing with something. Um, but we have to figure out in a restorative practices type of way, how can I build a relationship with this person? Because at some point I may need to restore it. Mm. And so you can't restore a relationship that never existed. And so that's something that people often miss when they're talking about restorative justice, restorative discipline. We have to figure out how are we at tier one creating the opportunities to build those strong, trusting relationships with adults, with children, with families, so that when some conflict occurs, we have something to restore. Because, like you said, you can't restore 
a relationship that's not there. Mm -mm. And with that particular parent, I had worked all year to build a relationship with him. Mm -hmm. He wasn't hearing it that day, (laughs) but he knew who I was. Right. You know, and so. And again, he he just wanted to be heard, and mm -hmm. that was how he was showing that. But you also set a boundary Mm -hmm. of that. This is, we can't do this like this. Mm -hmm. And then that, that showed like a level of respect, like I want to hear what you have to say, but we also have to do it in in a way that is is not disruptive and mm-hmm. and yeah. you're you're scaring my staff. And you're scaring, <laughs> and you're scaring my staff. I'm not scared, but they are terrified yeah. of you right now. I, I actually have a couple of like when you were telling that, I had a couple of um, of memories that came back mm-hmm. to those those times. Mm-hmm. And there was a time that I I was scared, but I I didn't think I showed it. So th- so that was good. So yeah, that was good. So um. I want to ask, um, so how do you, so you're, you're a principal on a campus and this is not how you've been doing things. So how do you shift that mindset? Um, because you know, you're going to get some people who are like, I don't have time for this. And also thinking about the COVID piece. So thinking about as, as schools return after COVID, I mean, we know COVID is still happening, but you know, with, with the new school year, um, what advice would you have as we know that the focus of teachers is going to be, you know, regaining the loss um, that the students have had academically um, and ensuring that they're continuing to stay focused on that restorative practice? Well, one thing is to not make the return to the new school year all about learning loss. That's step one. Okay. Let's start with social loss. Mm relationship loss connection loss those things were lost more greatly than learning Mm. that's what the students lost yeah and um what we tend to do in education from this deficit standpoint is focus on what we can't control So we couldn't control the daily academic engagement of children because they were not in front of us. Right. And so we assume as educators that they lost learning. I offer that that is not necessarily the assumption we should be taking. I offer that we should be looking at the greater loss, which is a child who is engaging in community and conversation and being with their peers, being with adults, are gaining so much more learning than simply attending to the academic content. And so how are we going to shore up our academic content delivery and our pedagogy Mm -hmm. so that our students are not continuing to lose the social aspect of learning. We can't go into this new school year focused on gaps and filling gaps because we have schools that exist in every single city in the state of Texas where children exist daily in classrooms where adults are only focused on skill building. Mm, That is true. And so 
what are we going to do, double down on skill building in those classes now? The children are never going to see the light of day. Right. And so what are we going to do differently? I don't like to use COVID-19. I don't like to use pandemic because that's not affirming language. It's not community building. So I say current reality. I say online reality of things of that nature. But that taught us that as educators, we can shift on a dime. Absolutely. We can. And do really great things. And we can shift the budget (laughs) in a matter of days to do what we need to do to make sure our children are taken care of. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to see us focus on learning loss for an entire three years. Don't kid yourself. It won't be one. No. It'll be, oh, the COVID reality, you know, three years ago, yada, yada, yada. We'll be looking at those matrices for 10 years Mm -hmm. and talking about the loss. And we were never able to recoup that loss. Hogwash. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I say just say no. Just say no. (laughs) (laughs) And I agree with that. I love that. All right. Um, This has just been such an amazing conversation. Is there any last things that you want to share with our listeners about, about our conversation today? I would say, um, so one thing that um, I like to focus on with um, restorative practices are the seven core assumptions for humans. Okay. And I, I, I'll read them to you. The true self in everyone is good, wise, and powerful. The world is profoundly interconnected. All human beings have a deep desire to be in a good relationship. All humans have gifts, and everyone is needed for what they bring. Everything we need to make positive change is already here. Human beings are holistic, and we need practices to build habits of living from the core self. And those are core assumptions that I hold true to developing the type of identity-affirming spaces in our schools that help us as adults see that we already have everything we need to create culturally responsive restorative spaces in our schools. We already have everything we need to design human-centered ways of being for our students, for our staff. We have to begin to take a step back and look at the daily impacts on the decisions that we make to, to make sure the school functions and look at it less as schooling and more as an opportunity to build community so that students and staff are able to bring their unique gifts into the school space, that they're able to feel valued, that they're able to be, um, just be. Mm. That's beautiful. Wow, <laughs> got chills. So what I, I, I like to always end my, pod, my podcasts with um, just seven short answer questions with an educational twist. <laughs> so as an educator, what keeps you up at night? Hmm. The plight of 
black, brown, and indigenous students in schools where adults don't understand who they are and what their lived experiences are. As an educator, what allows you to sleep soundly? Knowing that I'm doing everything in my power to make those, um, to make liberating school spaces and workplaces for our children and adults. What sound or noise do you love to hear in a school? Ha! Huh, children talking and laughing, <laughs> being goofy. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate to hear in a school? Silence. What is your favorite word in education? Liberation. What is your least favorite word in education? Discipline. Who was your favorite teacher and why? Miss Daniels, 11th grade English. She taught me that I was a writer. She saw me. She valued me. And she's the reason probably I became Dr. Ward because I didn't see myself as a writer before I took her class. So, Dr. Ward, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight and your experiences with us today. And we want to thank our listeners for joining in this episode of Drinking from the Fire Hose, a podcast for school leaders. If you like what you hear in this episode, hop on over to whatever platform you use and give us a rating and review. And of course, don't forget to mention this to your colleagues. Thanks.